You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Uh, who here likes to write poetry? All right, we got one. A couple wanted to admit it. How many of you like to write poetry and are not admitting it? Okay. How many of you, when you read poetry, you're just like, I don't get it? Like, yeah, that's me. Like, I, like it's just a different kind of mindset. It's a, it's a different way to communicate truths, abstract concepts, and emotions. And so when you, if you think about that, like maybe in high school or college, you had a poetry class, and you're just like, I don't get it. Like, okay, like it's supposed to be great, but, but I don't get it. Maybe you've read a psalm in the past, and you're like, I don't get it. Maybe you've had that this summer as you guys have been going through the psalms. Maybe you're just like, I don't get it. Like, I don't, why, why is it written this way? When you come to the psalms, when you come to any poetry, and there's a lot of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. It brings truths, concepts. It brings the things that God wants to communicate to us. It brings them in a different form. And you can see that, obviously. If we go through the Psalms, sometimes we get a little snippet of context. Like, oh, David's in trouble or he did something bad or whatever. It's kind of a beginning line. Or this one was written by Moses. And that's like all the context we get. And so you get just a sliver of a context, a background, to give it some meaning. But the way Hebrew poetry works, sometimes the lack of context actually broadens its meaning. And it gives you a fresh way to think about. And so when you come to Hebrew poetry, uh, Old Testament, all over the place, the prophets, sometimes you get to the book of Isaiah, you're like, I wish he had more narrative. I think what Isaiah would tell us, he'd say, the narrative is just there to stitch together the poetry. And that's the point. So when you have these little chunks, sort of out of nowhere, we have to frame how we think about it. Because what they're doing is they're reaching backwards. And they're linking to things that have gone before. But they're also linking forwards, which is the fascinating part. As you get into studying it, you're like, wow, this guy seemed to know, or this gal on a couple of occasions seemed to know off thousands of years in the future what was going to come. And you can see how God took a little poem and he stitched together this whole narrative from Genesis to maps. That's the last book of the Bible. You knew that, right? That's the final book. It's, it is inspired, actually. But God took all of this and wove it together over thousands of years. So when Scott, we talked six weeks ago, I'm not sure what it was, was kind of explaining how you were going about uh, the Psalms. And he's like, yeah, would you be interested in a day or two? Uh, and he kind of explained how you were going about it with the threes. And I'm like, oh, oh, 113, 113, choose me, choose me. Let me do that, please. Uh, and the date worked out. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to get to unpack this together. And I know we've got a lot of things in our mind this morning. Here's my invitation, and I think this would be God's invitation. I want you to get lost in this text. Get lost in this text. If you're visiting today, maybe somebody's here, have any idea what the meeting's about afterwards, whatever's going on in your life, you need to get lost from it too. 
God's invitation is to come, to hear him on his terms, drink from the well of living water. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Psalm 113 today. Uh, the way that this is going to work is if you have a Bible, it will work best. That is the outline. That's how we're going to go about it. If you don't have a Bible, cool, grab it on your app, on your phone, or uh, something. Do you have Bibles back there, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a few around, but just make sure you have a text in front of you. We're going to reference it back and forth. A couple of pages will turn to a couple of different chapters, but it will, it will make much more sense if you're able to look at it. Let's just read the first three verses. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. So right off the bat, you can see what's happening. Praise, praise, praise. Three times repeated. Now, in the text, we, we kind of think of it as sort of an exclamation, as like, oh, well, praise the Lord, I got that new job, or praise the Lord, that crazy drunk person didn't hit my teenager who's just learning to drive. Or we think of it as kind of a, an exclamation, which is appropriate, but the language here is actually a command. It's in an imperative form. It's telling us to do something. Praise the Lord. It's, it's an instruction telling us to praise the Lord, telling the reader to praise the Lord. It's a commandment, and it's repeated three times for emphasis. It tells us who we are to praise. When it says praise the Lord, you probably familiar, those all caps, that's the name of God, Yahweh. So praise who? Praise Yahweh. And then the command who should do the praising? Praise Yahweh, servants of Yahweh. We would consider ourselves part of that group. And then the commandment is about specifically the name. A special name, a unique name given to the Hebrews to share with the world. Praise the name of Yahweh. Not the name of all these other gods, but him specifically. And then he goes chapter or verse 2. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. So he's starting to take his own advice. I'm commanding you to praise the name of Yahweh, and I'm going to do the same. Blessed be the name of Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. So it kind of starts, okay, so this, this praise project. We're supposed to praise the name of the Lord. It's kind of... Of course, this isn't the only place that says it, but if we were to take this psalm, sort of in initiating this, this, this large-scale project, well, gives, he gives us a time quality about it. From this time forth, forevermore. There's an eternalness to what he's talking about. The next thing he does is give it a place. From the rising of, this, of the sun to the place of its setting. Uh, obviously, we now know that the globe is round. Apologies to any flat earthers in the room. We know that the globe is round. They knew it as well. They knew as far as you went, the sun would continue to set from the place of its rising to the place of its setting. It's, a, it's just a turn of phrase. It's a figure of speech called a merism. You can pick up on these a lot uh, in Hebrew poetry. 
it's not a literal place, but it's meant from, think of any beginning point to any end point and everything in between. The name of the Lord is to be praised from the beginning of the earth to the end of the earth. Where is God to be praised? How long is God to be praised? From here until forevermore. Where is he to be praised? Everywhere. Is there any place that's not to be included where God should be praised? No. None of it's excluded. As one theologian said, not one square inch. That's not his. Right? So this praise project is supposed to include all of time, and it's supposed to include all of space. But if we go backwards in time in the writing of this psalm, where and when was it? We don't know 100%. We know that the psalms probably had an original moment where someone was inspired, put down a few verses. At some point, it became a book that probably happened during the exile in Babylon, and it took its final shape. But all the course of over this, this long process of God inspiring it and bringing it to us, as we have it today... It's the Hebrews writing it, right? It had a local time and a local place. But the writer is already giving us a much broader horizon off in the distance. This praise project is not just about the Hebrew people. It's not just about the nation of Israel. And if we think about when and how this psalm came to be it came from the exile when they're in slavery in babylon that's where our the psalter the whole book kind of was brought together as one so our writer already in three verses say, oh praise the lord it's more than just a simple kind of exclamation it's a commandment it's total in its sweep it's a commandment to all peoples and to all of the universe. That's pretty stunning. That's pretty bold. If you think about where, again, this was finally brought into its final form, they're sitting there as slaves to a foreign empire. The universe will bow. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, is in another psalm that says. So, and then he begins to lay out why Yahweh should be praised. Verses 4 through 6. The Lord is high. Yahweh is high above all nations. And his glory above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? So he gives this command. It's totality and it's sweep of time. It's total in its scope of the entire world. And he says, well, why should we praise? Because the Lord is high and exalted. And he's over all the nations. All of these ethnic and political entities that cover the face of the earth, he's over them all. He's not just over the Hebrews. Oh, I know, we're sitting here in chains right now, but God is over all of these nations. Why should we praise God everywhere? Because he is sovereign over all of these nations. Even bigger, if you could, let's say you're on a flight 
and you're traveling from country to country. You can kind of look down and you can see the different roadways and stuff. You can imagine the boundaries of those. We could give ourselves a little bit of the sense that God is over these nations. But even bigger than that, God is high above the heavens. Whatever glory you think is out there in creation and in our modern age with the satellites that have just gone off exploring and telescopes from earth and all of these pictures. God is over all of it. He's even, even high above that. God is over all of it. He rules them all. And this mention of the nations starts to answer our question. Well, God is to be praised in all places. Well, how's that going to happen? Somehow the nations are going to be involved. This isn't just a Hebrews project. This isn't just a Jewish project. This is a for all people kind of project. In fact, it's going to take all of us if we're really going to see God's glory throughout the world and the earth for all times. That is going to take all of us. It's going to take the nations. And again, here are the Jews being punished for not being obedient themselves, slavery to, in slavery to another nation. Think of the boldness and confidence of this kind of statement. The nations will be. Yeah, it doesn't look like it right now. We're in a mess. Not sure how we're getting home. But this project for God's glory is going to happen. Isaiah says it this way. I would encourage you just to, if you're a note taker in your Bible, write down Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. I'll just give you verse 9 here. After the prophet gives this picture of this perfect world where all things are brought back into harmony with God, he says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful picture. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. That's what the psalmist is talking about. And his glory is even higher than that. And then he moves to this kind of rhetorical question. It's almost like he's just bubbling over with this praise himself. Who's like our God? Who is like our God who sits on high, enthroned above all of this? Who is like Yahweh, our God? And he was so holy and so above all these things. And he takes a left turn. Who also stoops down? Who is like this God who could really be Sovereign over all these things. No one, there is no God who could do that. And in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, that thinking was that each God was sort of tied to its locale. Sort of your neighborhood, you were in charge of that. And that's why when they went to war, it was kind of a big deal if you could beat somebody else's army because that meant, well, hey, your God's pretty cool because he's not just confined to your boundaries, and God can actually go someplace. So here the Hebrews are, they've been totally conquered. There's like, yeah, you know that conception of how you think a God is great? Nope, that's not actually it. Our God is the greatest. But he also gets down. 
It says he looks down on the heavens. Again, I like the perspective there. Think of the heavens as all up there. He's looking down on them, but then also looking down on the earth. And so this question bubbles up, right? If we're thinking through this process of this picture that the psalmist is giving us, how does this happen? How are we going to get here? How does this great future that the psalmist is alluding to here, Isaiah talks about, the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. The answer is, God is the kind of God who doesn't just sit up, but he gets down to make things happen. He comes close. He gets down into the stuff of earth. Actually, he gets down to where his people sit as slaves. He gets down to get his hands dirty. And he will make it happen in his time. Verse 7 goes even further. Let me read the next few verses. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap, and he makes them sit with princes, with the princes of his people, and he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So it's fascinating, okay? So he's giving this great picture, cosmic in scope, How's this going to happen? Well, God's going to get involved. And then he gets a snapshot to give us a picture of what kind of God would do that. What what snapshot could I grab from Israel's history to give, give this sermon illustration, if you will, of what a God like this would look like? And he goes to a, a unique place. Maybe you're familiar with it. The story of Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Now, had it not been for her son, we wouldn't know who Hannah was. She was not part of a prominent family. She doesn't play a big role in the story of redemption. We hear her story because she's actually kind of on the bottom of the social pecking order. She can't have children. And for their day and age, that was one of the main contributions that uh, a woman would bring to society and God's story is they actually gave people the fruit of their body to be a part of God's greater drama. And she had nothing. And since she was tormented by her husband's other wife, let's not get into that for the moment. It's obviously doesn't work out well. Uh, But she's tormented by her. She's teased and she's shamed because she has nothing to offer. So she prays to God, Lord, if you would give me a son, I will give him back to serve you. And the son that God gives her is the prophet Samuel. Now what happens in the midst of all of that story is she launches into a song. It's a very famous song. It's quoted in the New Testament. You maybe have heard of her if you haven't heard of Hannah, Mary. She gives birth to Jesus. If you've not heard anything, you've probably heard of the story of baby Jesus. Mary launches into the same kind of praise in Luke chapter 2. She's quoting from Hannah. The psalmist here is also quoting from Hannah. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. It's fascinating that of all the moments that the psalmist wants to grab 
to illustrate his point about this God who is enthroned but also is going to make these things happen. He goes and grabs this snapshot from a young woman who can't have children who otherwise we would never hear about. That's the snapshot he grabs. Of course, we could extrapolate a little bit. Who is the needy sitting in ashes of weeping and wailing? Well, it would be the people of Israel at this point as they sit in exile. But he's going way, way beyond that. He raises the poor from the dust. And he makes them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. We could, we could say that's Samuel. Samuel was really the first leader of the national period, if we could say it that way, after they'd sort of come in and taken Canaan and Joshua passed on. Samuel's really the first judge of Israel, if you understand that period. So you could say that applies to him directly, but there's, again, there's layers to this. There's so much more going on. We'll connect that dot in just a second. He gives this snapshot. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Hannah's story is really unique. She drops in and out of the story pretty quickly, but she leaves this huge mark that's picked up in other places in Scripture, not just this mark with her son, Samuel, which is pretty significant, but also her story is picked up on and echoed throughout different places. Now, the words here are not a promise. God isn't going to do this for everyone. He isn't going to do this for everyone who can't have children. But this is the kind of God he is. He cares for his people to this particular level of getting deep down and involved to notice the lowly, to notice the poor and uninteresting, to notice those who maybe the rest of the world doesn't notice, and he gets down and involved in their life. This is what God is like. So praise the Lord. The commandment restated, and that's how it ran. That's how it ties up. So let's look beyond Psalm 113. I've already alluded backwards where he's quoting and why he grabbed this. We touched on just Isaiah's vision, and there are dozens of others we could pull together that this psalm is, is drawing on. It's going backwards, and it's reminding us of something at a critical point, but it's also pointing forward. This psalm is pointing forward in a really important way. Now, I'm going to get just a little bit technical, if you'll forgive me, uh, but it will make sense. So stay with me for a second. So you understand uh, that the Old Testament was written down in Hebrew, but by the, day, by the time of Jesus and the apostles, there were a lot of wars and a lot of history happened. Uh, and because of that, people, uh, Hebrew had become less and less common, and so they translated the Old Testament into Greek. So by Jesus and the apostles' day, there were versions of the Old Testament. It was their Bible. We think of it as the Old Testament now. That were in Greek and in Hebrew. Now, it's interesting, if you get into this, when the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, they quote both the Greek and Hebrew versions. They didn't quote from one as though it was a translation of the original. They just quoted both as the Word of God. 
That's significant. So when we think about that then, when we look at Psalm 113 specifically, we have the chance to kind of have like a, I want to date myself here, but we still had transparencies and overlays in elementary school. Actually, we did this in church for a long time past elementary, right? But you kind of know, you get an overlay, and it gives you sort of an extra depth and detail. So we can compare the Hebrew version of Psalm 113 to the Greek version, and we shouldn't really overly concern ourselves, well, but one is inspired. The New Testament writers treated it as the Word of God. And so that gives us just a little more color. So I want to just delve into one word, in verse 6 of Psalm 113, how many of you, everybody, you guys are going to use the ESV? Anybody not using the ESV? All right, what's your version? The NIV. Okay, what, is, what does your verse say there in verse 6? Who stoops down. Very good. Anybody got the KJV or NAS? Here, all right, you have yours opened up? What's yours say? He humbles himself. That's, that's really interesting. So not to pick apart translations, this isn't a right or wrong, but it's how this gives color to it. The Greek word there is tepeinos or tepeinao. It means to humble. It's an important word in the New Testament. I want to go to Philippians chapter 2. We talk about this humbling, right? God is high and holy, but he deigns to get down with us in our mess. He gets to us where we are. He lowers himself. He humbles himself to join us in our pile of dust and ashes so that he can lift us up. So you're seeing where this is going. I think some of you are seeing the dots. Turn to Philippians 2. If you have a Bible... If you have an app, I would encourage you to flip over there as well, uh, however you flip with your app. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Paul writes to the church there, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the connection between our praise project that the psalmist in 113 is kind of alluding to, and he's given us this broader perspective that's out there. How are we going to get there? Something's going to happen. God is going to get down and get involved in this project. Philippians says it's the same word, same Greek word. He humbled himself. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. You see, this isn't an aberration. Some English translations translate it, although he was in the form of God, 
he humbled himself. That's a little bit interpretive. Some other English translations will just say, being in the form of God, he humbled himself. This is an attribute of God. His humility. His willingness to get down in our mess. His willingness to get in the ash heap with us. Psalm 113 is giving us whispers that off in the distance we will, oh wow, and see that more clearly. But already in Psalm 113, he's hinting at this incarnation. What would it look like to have a God who was this holy and high, far above the heavens and all their glory? What would, it, what would it possibly look like for him to come down and humble himself? Surely there's a limit. Sort of like, you know, I'll hold babies in the nursery at church, but don't ask me to clean the bathrooms during the week. That kind of limit to my humility right? No one can resonate with that, I'm sure. There's no limit. And that's the point that Paul is making here in this passage. Being, form, being found in the, uh, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself to how far? To the point of becoming obedient to death, not just any death, but the death on a cross. So we read Psalm 113, God stoops down to get involved with us. To what degree does he stoop down? Surely there must be a limit. Paul would say, actually, no. No limit. He got down and got his hands dirty in our dirty lives. In fact, he didn't just get his hands dirty, he got his hands bloody. Paul finishes the thought. Even death on a cross. Verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9, if you're in Philippians with me. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the, the name. There's this project about making the name known. He's given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Okay, now... Paul has pinched that line from the prophet Isaiah because Isaiah says, at the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow. Paul is saying, Jesus is Yahweh. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Do you see the parallel with Psalm 113? God is sovereign, not just over the earth, but also over the heavens. Philippians 2 is picking up all of this. He's pointing to this eternal, cosmic-in-scope praise project. Every tongue confess. How is the name of the Lord going to be known? How is the name of the Lord going to be praised over all of this? Because everyone will be a part of it. And the knowledge of the Lord and the name of Jesus will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea to the glory of God the Father. That's where it's going. Who's like this God? 
Who is like this God who is so high and yet would willingly take on the form of his servants, suffer the death that they experience because of his consequences to their own sin, and not just any death, a nice, quiet, peaceful death in the bed with all the grandchildren around, but a violent, bloody, shameful death. Who is like this God? And of course, the answer is no one. Jesus is, yeah, who is like this Jesus? There's no one else. Exactly right. There's no one else. So beautiful. So beautiful. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean? I hope you get a little bit excited about it. I hope you can get into the story of the text and how this psalmist, who lived thousands of years before us, in vastly different circumstances, maybe there were multiple hands that put their pen to this psalm before it finally came to us in, our final, in their, the final form that we have. So different from us, yet exactly the same as us, with the same needs. I hope you can have a vision of how your life fits into that. I hope it excites you. I hope it turns your crank a little bit. If not, that's okay. If I haven't completed that task, that's okay. If you, you think this guy's crazy, I'm not following him at all, I don't know. Okay, if you tuned out, lost, if I lost you up to this point, listen to this part. Because here's what it means. God joins you in your mess. God comes to be with you in your mess. It may not look exactly the way he joined Hannah. He may not answer your prayer in exactly that way. He may not answer your prayer in exactly the same way he met, answered Jesus' prayer. But he does join you in your mess. Sometimes the messes are our making. Sometimes they're mistakes, honest mistakes. Sometimes they're results of sin, and we will feel those consequences. Sometimes it's due to circumstances completely outside our control, uh, to other people's sin, or just life in a fallen world. But God joins you, God joins us in our mess. God joins us in our mess. He doesn't just join us to puddle with us, as they say. He joins us there so that he could take his bloody hands and lift us. So that we might be seated with the princes and princesses of his people. Peter says it this way, we who were not a people have been made the people of God. We have been brought into his family. We are sisters and brothers with the risen Lord and the King of all creation. We are with him. We are princes and princesses. And he gets down into our lives in the gospel, in all of our brokenness, whether our fault or someone else's. He's down here with his scarred and bloody hands with us to lift us so that one day we will be seated with him around 
table, the table of celebration. Revelation calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will be there, royalty with him forever, seated with all the others chosen from every nation, tribe, and language, and nation. So who is like Yahweh our God? Let's let's just change the phrasing. Who is like Jesus our God, who sits enthroned on high and who looks down on the nations who will bow before him? And he rules them, as Psalms 2 says, with an iron scepter. Who is like Jesus our God, who looks at all of this and says, I want him. I want her. I want her. Who is like that God who sits there enthroned over all of this glory and political power and eternal splendor and says, I want her. Who's like that God? He wants you. He wants you. Who is like that God? It's a rhetorical question. Clearly no one. No one is like that God. Who is like Jesus our God? Who set aside his glory to come and get us from our ash heap? To rescue us. Make us royalty to sit us around his table with him. Who is like him? Praise the name of The Lord, praise the name of Jesus. Let his name be praised from this time forth and forevermore. Praise his name indeed. Let's pray. Lord, you are so much bigger, so much grander than any feeble conception we can come up with. You're, whatever words we can give, whatever songs we could sing, whatever poetry we could write and imagine, none of it is up to the task, uh, but we give it to you. And we just give you thanks that you have chosen us. That you've invited us in to be a part of this story that started before the foundations of the earth were laid and you have this culmination planned off in the future. You've invited us to seed us with you in glory and made it possible and secured it in the gospel. All we can say is thank you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.